0: When an emergency strikes, Preppy has you covered. Made in California, canvas and leather emergency kits packed with survival food, water, and first aid with optional emergency satellite communication. Go to preppy.co. That's p r e p p i .co/filmweek.
1: So good to have you with us for Film Week, our final film week of 2020 during this holiday week and so many high-profile films to talk about that are being released on streaming services on demand and in some rare cases in some parts of the country in theaters. We're joined this week by critics Wade Major, also with us Amy Nicholson and Charles Solomon. We begin with Wonder Woman 1984. Gal Gadot returns as the star, along with Kristen Wiig. Chris Pine co-starring Patty Jenkins directs the screenplay co-written by Jenkins with Jeff Johns and Dave Callaham. Wade, what did you think of Wonder Woman 1984?
0: I absolutely loved it. But let me preface this so before my colleagues jump all over me that I am very aware of its flaws. It's it's it has an incredibly tough uh, film to follow. The first Wonder Woman is one of the great all-time superhero films. The World War One backdrop gave it an emotional resonance and a gravitas that is almost impossible to duplicate. So. They they understand that's a that's a tough act to follow. So what they've done is they've gone a little bit more conventional here, um, and they've done a few things to keep it fresh, which I think are smart. And on the on on the whole, I think it's as good of a film as they could have done. It, it obviously we flash forward to 1984. There The plot revolves around a, a a gemstone that bestows wish fulfillment and which unleashes all kinds of havoc. and i'll I'll leave it there, but I'll just say what I liked most about it was that when they bring back Steve Trevor, which everyone knows because it was in the trailer, they've reversed the fish out of water dynamic a bit, which makes it fresh. In the first film, he was introducing her to his world. Now, she is introducing him to the world of 1984. And I think that was a really smart change.
1: I really liked the first one. It's one of my favorite superhero uh, films, the first one with Gadot. Amy, what did you think of Wonder Woman 1984?
2: You know, I'm going to agree with Wade, actually. I liked this film a lot myself. It has, you know, a lightness, a playfulness, a colorfulness um, that does make it a very different film than the first one. And it it very much enjoys uh, digging into the tropes of 80s cinema. You have Kristen Wiig show up um, who gets one of those all time 80s makeovers from geek to chic, and that's like a major part of the plot. Um, They're in love with, you know, Chris Pine's new obsession with fanny packs like it's having a ton of fun with the costume design, a ton of fun with the settings. You go to a mall that's very much like the dream fantasy mall that fast times at Ridgemont High wishes it could have been or Valley Girl. and so it is just a lot of light fun. It's trying for some modern day relevance in here. You know, the bad guy played by Pedro Pascal. If any of this sounds familiar, he's a TV personality, phony millionaire kind of con man. He hates being called a loser. And his arc is that, you know, he wants money. He wants power. He winds up upending geopolitics and winds up getting the powers of the presidency. So that's all in here if you are not completely trying to escape the news. But it's just um, very sweet, very fun. I think the stunts are a little bit dumb. Um, But uh, I've had a lot of fun just watching this. Uh,
1: Wonder Woman 1984 is in theatrical release. If you're listening in a part of the country or part of the world where movie theaters are open, it's also on HBO Max. Rated PG-13. Patty Jenkins directing Wonder Woman 1984. The newest Disney Pixar animated film is Soul, starring the voice of Jamie Foxx, Pete Docter, the director, and co-wrote the screenplay with Mike Jones and Kemp Powers. Charles, what did you think of Soul? Well, this is a lovely
3: film, and it's not surprising because, after all, Pete Docter brought us inside out and up. And now he's taken a very bold step. This is the first Pixar film to center on a black character, uh, that's why um, uh, Kemp Powers came in as co-director and co-writer. The main character, the one voiced by Fox, Joe uh, Gardner, is a mus- aspiring jazz musician and middle school band teacher who is killed in an accident and refuses to go to the great beyond and ends up in a part of the other world where souls are assigned their personalities. And this is administered by... Um, a very fussy group of officials, one of them is played by Richard Ayoade, wonderfully. And he falls in with a recalcitrant soul, 22, who is Tina Fey, who refuses to go to earth because it's such a mess. Why would anyone want to inhabit a human body and do that? All sorts of contretemps ensue. It's warm. It's charming. It's funny. It has a terrific jazz score. Uh, It's a lovely film and has some very interesting uh, groundbreaking design work at a time when so many animated films look so much alike with all these ridiculous, over-detailed bits. There are characters, particularly the ones administering the the area of the souls, who look like Calder wire sculptures come to life. And so it's also visually very striking. And again, I think it's just a, a terrific film. And I think it and... Uh, Wolfwalkers are going to be dividing up the awards for the ensuing season.
1: We're talking about Soul, co-directed by Pete Docter and by Kemp Powers. Uh, Soul is rated PG. Amy, what did you think?
2: You know, I can't believe that Charles, who is my partner in Cat Obsession, also left out that this is the first Pixar movie with a major role for a cat. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, we've had tons of dogs and bugs and rats and robots, and now we have a cat, which... I was very happy to see that. I want to second what Charles said about the animation style. You know, it reminded me a bit of the very old um, Disney shorts. You know, the ones where Donald Duck would learn about music and his entire body would turn into a good guitar string and start vibrating. It has that expressionism to it. And you can tell this is a movie where they've given a lot of thought into what they want people to take away from the message about souls, about what unites us. You know, When you go to the great beyond, the way they represent souls is that there is no gender. There is no race. Everyone is this electric teal peach. Um, but you can voice the sound of a different gender, but you can switch it if you want. You, know, you can kind of play around, you know, that, that personalities are what matter in, in the creation of a soul, in the creation of people. And I, I think it is just an absolutely little beautiful film.
1: Soul, Wade.
0: Yeah, I, I, I'm i perhaps a little less enthusiastic than Charles and Amy, but I'm still enthusiastic. I mean, it's kind of second tier Pixar for me. And it's funny, I feel a little bit the same way I feel about Wonder Woman 1984, that where I, I forgive a lot in the screenplay because I love the theme. I love the message that they've imbued in it. I love the characters so much. I think there's a lot of richness there. But there's a little clunky interlude with the cat. Uh, which is kind of a body switching thing that didn't work for me at all. It kind of felt like uh, we need to do something, let's think up something to do just to kind of bide our time and I think, uh, you know, Charles mentioned Wolfwalkers which is, for my money, the great animated film of, of the year and that has a body switching thing in it but it is much, much better integrated, it's more powerful and I hate to compare the two because I really like them both and I think I think they occupy their own spaces um, but it, it, it you know, it's it, it, it has a few things that just don't, don't Quite click for me, but I forgive them because it really is very emotionally touching.
1: The music, by the way, that uh, Charles complimented is from John Batiste and Trent Reznor, uh, Atticus Ross, also uh, on the score of of the film. Charles, just quick uh, closing thought on Soul.
3: Well, I mean, Wade is is determinedly darkest, so there's no point in arguing. <laughs> but uh, i think larry as a jazz buff that you will enjoy that score very much it's very lively and very rich and they shot um photographed batiste's hands when he was performing it so they could animate them uh correctly and when joe plays he really plays and again just such a lovely film that uh feels right for the
1: holidays soul from director pete doctor co-director kemp powers they collaborated with mike jones on the screenplay it's rated pg and it's streaming on disney plus soul promising young woman is a comedic crime story starring carrie mulligan bo burnham and laverne cox the film's written and directed by emerald Fennell. amy what'd you think of promising young woman
2: Oh, promising a woman is fantastic, and actually, just this weekend, uh, we all at lafco voted it best screenplay and best lead. So it's definitely something I want people to watch. Uh, it's being sold, I would say, as like a, a kind of colorful PG thirteen version of "I Spit on Your Grave." You know, the rape revenge film from the seventies. You know, if you watch the trailer, it's like Carrie from Carrie Mulligan is this femme fatale. She goes out every night as this. Act of vengeance against quote unquote nice guys. She pretends to be drunk. They offer to help. They usually wind up putting the moves on her when she's incapacitated. And that's when she suddenly shows that she's sober and terrifies them. It is about that. That's all here, you know, that kind of like Twitter clapback girl power energy. But it really takes a twist that's much more complicated than that. You know, it's about self destruction, about how far Carrie Mulligan is willing to go. And how there are certain crimes that there is no real satisfying restitution that can undo the pain, you know, the limits of this revenge. And so I just adored this film. I think it's incredibly smart. And it's interesting to see a film that's like this, but it's uh, starring a person um, in a a colorful world that's, like, very feminine. She's not this, like, black leather muscle tee action babe. It's all pastels. It's very, like, 2000s. You know, there's a Paris Hilton song on the soundtrack that actually works. And I want to give a a small shout out before I pass it to Wade about Bo Burnham from 8th Grade. You know, he's the director of 8th Grade. He shows up here as an actor. He plays this old classmate who's trying to take Carrie Mulligan out on a date. And he has this charm and this way of looking at her as though she's the coolest person he's ever seen on Earth. He's going to get a bazillion calls to be like everybody's new romantic lead, I feel like, in every new movie that's going to come out. But I do hope he just keeps directing. However, he's amazing in this film.
0: Promising young woman, Wade. I do concur. It's funny because I I have the new Blu-ray box set of I Spit on Your Grave like three inches from me right now, which shows you where my my inclinations go. (laughs) And that's exactly what this is. It is an elevated uh, I Spit on Your Grave. And for that, I think we have to give a lot of credit to Jordan Peele for for showing people within the last few years how to take genre material And to elevate it so that it is treating more serious issues and and more high-minded issues uh, without abandoning the genre roots. And that's what this does. It's very much a genre film. It it recognizes its exploitation roots. It understands this is a rape-revenge film. We're not going to try to pretend that we're anything else. But... We're going to do it in such a way that doesn't sort of that that asks you to engage with it intellectually rather than viscerally. And on that level, I think it, it, it the real star of this film obviously is the star, Carrie Mulligan, because she understands that. And her performance is is really one for the ages. I mean, yeah, we gave her best actress and I think very deservedly.
1: Film again, Promising Young Woman, starring Carrie Mulligan, written and directed by Emerald Fennell. The film's rated R, and it's being released in theaters this week, so check your local drive-in listings here in Southern California. Tom Hanks stars in his first western, News of the World, alongside young Helena Zengel, Paul Greengrass, the director and co-screenwriter with Luke Davies. It's an adaptation of Paulette Giles' uh, book, News of the World. Wade, what'd you think?
0: Absolutely loved this without reservation. I wish I could have seen it on the big screen. This is a film like many, like all great Westerns that demands the the, the bigger canvas. And it occurred to me while watching this that for all the comparisons that Tom Hanks has always received to Jimmy Stewart, the one thing he had never done was a Western, which was a huge part of Jimmy Stewart's career. So here now we finally have a Western with which to, to connect the, the Hanks-Stewart axis as sort of the all-American uh, great movie star. And I'll tell you, Tom Hanks rises to the occasion. He he plays a man whose job it is to travel from town to town post-Civil War and read the news to basically be what movies are to us today, what theater they did not have at the time, which was to get their drama from newsreaders. And along the way, he becomes the sort of uh, unwitting and unwilling caretaker to this young German girl um, who is part of an immigrant German community with whom he can't really uh, communicate. And he necessarily has to sort of get her from point A to point B. It's one of those Western Odyssey uh, movies. And it's it's not surprising. It doesn't have any uh, anything in it that isn't sort of very genre established. But the emotions are what carry you. You know where this film is going. But you're along for the ride because the destination is far less important than the journey itself. And Helena Zengel, let's just say this extraordinary young German actress who Paul Greengrass uh, was instantly uh, won over by, she holds her own with Tom Hanks. Make no mistake, she is an extraordinary talent, uh, and we'll see a lot more of her in the future. We're talking about
1: the Western News of the World starring Tom Hanks. Amy?
2: Yeah, Helena Zengel has one of those faces that you can just stare at the entire film, and you can see all this intelligence behind her eyes. It's really interesting. She's playing a girl who um, has been taken away to be raised by the Kiowa after like a, a, a massacre in her small, like very rural Texas community. And so this film, you know, the, probably the easy beat to describe it is that it's you know woke searchers. Like if the searchers took away all of the darkness of John Wayne and replaced it with the goodness of Tom Hanks. And you see in there a lot of really important modern parallels. You know, it's very much grafted onto the power of words, the power of knowledge. And you get that from uh, Tom Hanks' performance, but you also see how reading the news is kind of like this Jay Leno opening night, late night monologue of the day.
1: News of the World rated PG-13 in theaters starting on Christmas Day. Check your local drive-in listings in Southern California, directed by Paul Greengrass. More to come on Film Week. So good to have you with us on Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle. This is our last film week of 2020. The show is off for next week because of the New Year's holiday weekend. But we've got so many great films released this week. And next, we're talking about, with our critics, Charles Solomon, Amy Nicholson, and Wade Major. We're talking about The Western, starring Tom Hanks and Helena Zengel, News of the World, from director and writer Paul Greengrass. And Amy, you're just talking about how much you appreciated this film.
2: I was, and I agree with Wade that I wish I could have seen it on the big screen, because it also has, you know, in addition to, you know, the moral compass of, of a new form of Western um, giant adventure stories, you know, there's crashes and shoots out shootouts. There's a dust storm that looks spectacular on my TV and I wish I could see it large. Um, but yeah, like what I think really holds it together is just this story about information and news and the power of news. You know, you're there's a moment where Tom Hanks goes into a village that's kind of ruled by a media tycoon tyrant of the time. And he, starts almost instigating a riot by choosing what news to pick to turn the workers against their boss of this town when the boss just wants him to, you read stories about how cool it is to just keep massacring all of the buffalo. So there's this you know, idea in here about the editorialization of the news, who gets to shape the news, and how important the stories are in shaping the way America goes forward. So it's a really smartly done film.
1: Wait, final thought on news of the world.
0: Yeah, it's a, also a wonderful evolution for Paul Greengrass, who, of course, obviously uh, has worked with Tom Hanks before and who's made many great films like United 93. But his, his films always had kind of a, a documentary urgency to them. And here he's adapted to the more classical parameters of the Western genre. He understands what you need to do when you're working within these confines, and he rises to the occasion beautifully. And that doesn't often happen.
1: News of the World, rated PG-13 in theatrical release starting on Christmas Day. Check your local drive-in listings in Southern California, and of course, if you're elsewhere in the country where theaters have opened, it'll be coming uh, to a theater most likely near you. Pieces of a Woman is uh, directed by Cornel Mundroso, uh, written by Kata Weber. The film stars Vanessa Kirby, Shia LaBeouf, and Ellen Burstyn. Amy, what do you think of Pieces of a Woman?
2: Yeah, Pieces of a Woman is an acting piece. Full stop. Yep. Vanessa Kirby, who has the lead here, um, you might recognize her face. She was in, um, she had little bit parts in Mission Impossible Six, one of the Fast and Furious movies. She's the center of this movie here, and she's outstanding. She was one of my um, second votes for actress this year. The film is about this misfit couple that at the beginning of the film is nine months pregnant with their daughter. Um, her uh, partner is Shia LaBeouf, and he's you know, this bridge worker, a guy who works with his hands, and she comes from a very posh family. Ellen Burstyn is her mother. Uh, her mother's very rich. Her mother's very much of a meddler. And I have to talk about this because it does happen before the credits, even though it's a very long, long, long unbroken sequence. In the very beginning of the film, you have this birth sequence that is one single take, absolutely unbelievable, where you watch her give birth. And it has all of these different crescendos and emotional beats, um, uh, things that upend it, things that spin the the day around, and it winds up not ending well. And so half an hour into the film, you get the title card, and then the movie actually begins, which is like her dealing with the grief. It, It really is great just sitting back and watching a movie where you see a performer own it like this, own every space of it. And Shia LaBeouf, of course, himself is always such a committed performer. His character's not that flattering. He's a guy with a lot of hard-headed, bullish ways of love and uh, demanding to get his needs met. But I think it's a really powerful film.
1: Pieces of a Woman, weighed.
0: Yeah, well, you, it's usually the French who give us movies like this, where the, they, they turn the emotional screws a, a little bit further than you might want them to be. Vanessa Kirby is probably most familiar to a lot of people for playing Princess Margaret on uh, The Crown. And uh, she's a British actress, plays American here. But she, this is her showcase. And for me, it was uh, it was it was rough because I, I sat there and. Admiring the performances, admiring to the highest possible degree where these actors were going, what risks they were taking, while at the same time really not enjoying the film at all. It goes to a very, very dark and difficult emotional place. It's um, it's an arduous sit. It's designed to be arduous. It's designed to be grueling and punishing. And um, you, you need to approach this with a, a little bit of, of masochism to really, really enjoy it. But it is, from an acting standpoint, if you just focus on the performances, that's really what can carry you through. But the subject matter is really dark and really tough.
1: Pieces of a Woman. Final thought, Amy?
2: Yeah, I would definitely watch it, at least just to know that you should always be watching out for Vanessa Kirby from this point forward. I think a showcase is exactly the right word.
1: Pieces of a Woman is in limited release and then starts streaming on Netflix on January 7th, starring Vanessa Kirby, Shia LaBeouf, Ellen Burstyn, uh, the film directed by Cornell. Mundrosso, it's rated R. Sylvie's Love is set in late nineteen fifties Harlem, and it stars Tessa Thompson. The film is written and directed by Eugene Ash. Wade,
0: it's amazing how many great jazz-themed films we're, we're getting now. Uh, starting Ma Rainey, and then Soul, and Sylvie's Love is another one. And I've got to be honest, for my money, Sylvie's Love is the best of all of them. Uh, it, this is a—I am madly in love with this movie. It, Eugene Ash is a, is a former recording artist for Sony, uh, so deeply in love with jazz. He's only made one other film eight years ago. This is the most excited I have been about a new filmmaker, possibly since Zhang Yimou. Um, he has an incredible command of style. It's basically this beautiful 50s melodrama about a young woman, played by Tessa Thompson, who meets uh, an aspiring saxophone player, uh, paid, played by uh, Namdi Asimoga, former NFL player, who's become a really, really good actor, and um, what transpires there over time. And the inspirations here are amazing. I mean, it has all of those beautiful candy colors that you get from '50s melodramas, mostly Douglas Cirque movies. Uh, that's an inspiration. Uh, it, it, he took uh, Ash also took inspiration from the photography of Gordon Parks and the music of Nancy Wilson, and it's all rolled up here in just in such a beautiful package. The only thing I can say is this is like an American version of "In the Mood for Love."
1: Wow, high praise Sylvie's love from writer director Eugene Ash. Amy.
2: Yeah, what I appreciate about this film is that their romance, um is really strong. You know, I mean, Tessa Thompson is the kind of person who could have chemistry with a lamppost. and um, and Nadami he has this quiet inner resolve that I think you you see his magnetism when he walks into a, into the scene. He doesn't talk much, but the way he moves around Tessa. Uh, has a lot of energy to it and yet where the film where eugene ash spends a lot of his time is watching both of them grow into their own separately you know can they be themselves before they can even be together or like what compromises do you have to make to be the best version of yourself even if the best version of yourself wants to be with this other person There are bits in here that I thought were a little bit clunky, like it very much wants you to know how the time is passing from the 50s to the 60s. Like somebody literally says the times they are changing in the film. You know, there's a moment where you even see Tessa Thompson reading uh, The Feminine Mystique. And there's another cousin character who calls up just to tell everybody what's happening in politics right now. Uh, So all of that is a little bit eye rolling, but it has such a heart that I was really enjoying watching this film.
1: The film is Sylvie's Love from writer-director Eugene Ash. It's rated PG-13, and it's streaming on Amazon Prime Video. The Last Shift, a comedic drama starring Richard Jenkins, written and directed by Andrew Cohn. Amy?
2: yeah, Richard Jenkins is one of our best actors, and this is very much a Richard Jenkins film. It's fantastic. Um, Andrew Cohn, the director here, He's a filmmaker who really started his career making documentaries about the American dream and where it's failed us. And this is his film version of that. So what you have is Richard Jenkins um, playing a guy who was this former high school athlete. He took this graveyard shift at a local chain restaurant in his rural town, or you know, mid-level town called Oscar's Chicken and Fish. And he's just never left, you know. And so from 1971 to today, he's gotten his hourly rage raised wage raised from thirteen ten to like $13, but that's about it. And this restaurant is his, he feels like it's his, he has this ownership over it. And then when he retires, um, a young, uh, kind of self-destructive young father, uh, named Javon shows up and they just have these showdowns in the restaurant when it's just the two of them at this late night, you know, they try to talk about what's wrong with the world and they can't agree. You know, Richard Jenkins is the kind of person who, you know, bristles at the idea of white privilege and says he's worked hard for everything and that their conversations just spark and they can't really grow. And it's a really good study, I think, of kind of the struggle for the working poor to realize they shouldn't be fighting each other. They should be fighting the system. You know, it's a film about the system that has kept Richard Jenkins, you know, strapped and living with roommates. But yet the aggression is just all misplaced. You know, and so it's a a tricky little watch. I really appreciated it. And when the humor comes, it is there, but it's mostly sad. Um, And there is an appearance from Divine Joy Randolph, the actress I absolutely love. She was in Dolan Is My Name. She plays the boss, Shaz. And um, it's always just wonderful to see her walk into a film.
1: The Last Shift, Rated R, stars Richard Jenkins, uh, Shane Paul McGee, written and directed by Andrew Cohn, and it's available on multiple on-demand platforms. The documentary Audrey provides archival footage and interviews about the great actress Audrey Hepburn. uh, Helena Cohn, the director. Charles?
3: Well, who doesn't love Audrey Hepburn? But unfortunately, this is a not very good film about her that tells you much less about her than it should. It's padded with stock footage. Uh, The filmmaker keeps cutting back to a couple of not terribly good ballerinas dancing that have nothing to do with anything, except that Hepburn once wanted to be a ballerina. And they'll introduce an element like the fact that Colette herself chose Hepburn to play Gigi on Broadway And then it just stops and doesn't say, well, you know, that's kind of an important writer and kind of an important role, falls by the wayside. Similarly, when they're talking about um, the film of My Fair Lady, they mention that, yes, she didn't do her own singing, and a clip shows you why, but all the questions about the Oscars that year and et cetera, et cetera, fall by the wayside. They talk about her work uh, at UNICEF, which was so inspiring. But they don't have anyone from UNICEF to talk about it. They have people like Richard Avedon's grandson, who may or may not have ever actually met the woman, uh, talking about things. And it's, again, just so much less than it should be for a figure as beloved
0: and important as Audrey
3: Hepburn. It's
1: the documentary. Audrey, what do you think, Wade?
0: Yeah, Charles is not wrong. Uh, but the thing is, it's pretty hard to put uh, a picture of Audrey Hepburn up there and not sort of fall in love with it in some regard. I mean, that's the whole magic of her stardom was just how alluring she was. So even in a documentary that makes some missteps, uh, you, you, there are moments here that are just absolutely magnetic, but they're the moments that were already magnetic in her films. Um... I enjoyed the documentary fully aware of its faults. I, what I appreciated about it was that it, it went to rather great lengths to outline all of the, the, the personal life stuff, her marriages and her children and her insecurities and, you know, deciding to leave the movies and, and everything that was, was very much awry in her private life, even uh, there's a substantial portion on her childhood during World War II. And um, that stuff, I thought, was, was welcome and resonant. But it gives very short shrift to her career, unfortunately. The movies, it skips to the movies very, very, very quickly. It gives almost no attention whatsoever to My Fair Lady. And her career is pretty much done by the midpoint of the movie. The rest of it is UNICEF and family stuff. Um, with the exception of, you know, maybe, maybe two final films and always the Steven Spielberg film isn't really addressed here at all. They have a few clips with uh, Richard Dreyfuss talking about her, but it doesn't really go to any, any, anything deep and always was kind of the, the career capper. She died shortly thereafter. So, um, it's not as good as it should be. It doesn't quite do her justice, but there's there is enough here to, to make it, I would say, marginally uh recommended. I,
1: I don't know whether you ever saw the Peter Bogdanovich ensemble uh film that that he did, um uh, that was shot in New York. Audrey Hepburn, was one of the you know characters in that Ben Gazzara and uh, you know uh, Dorothy Stratton, who was involved with Bogdanovich at the at the time, they all laughed. Was the film, but uh, even there, you know, in a very you know small role that she had, she sure made a great impression.
0: So, I, I mean, you know, Audrey Hepburn was one of those um, accidental stars. And I think we always gravitate to those people because it's one thing to want to be a star and to work at it. But it re- what really speaks to stardom is when you just fall into it because it's who you are, not who you want to be.
1: We're talking about the documentary Audrey Helena Cohn is the director of the film about uh, the life and acting work of Audrey Hepburn. It's unrated and it's available on demand starting January 5th on Fandango Now, iTunes and on Google Play. Coming up, we'll hear what our critics have to say about the film from New Zealand, Shadow in the Cloud, starring Chloe Grace Moretz and Nick Robinson also Dear Comrades, which is a Russian drama, and the documentary The Minimalist Less Is Now about those who claim their lives are so much better by living with so much less. It's Film Week on 89.3 KPCC and the KPCC app. We'll be back in just a minute. hope you're having a wonderful holiday week. It's Film Week on KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. Just a reminder, no Film Week next week. We're covering all the films being released on demand, on streaming services, limited release in theaters, all between now and New Year's Day, as we're preempted for the final week of the year. Joined this week by film critics Charles Solomon Amy Nicholson and Wade Major. Next up is Shadow in the Cloud, a film from New Zealand starring Chloe Grace Moretz. Roseanne Liung is the director and co-screenwriter with Max Landis. Amy, what do you think of Shadow in the Cloud?
2: It, Shadow in the Cloud is this tiny, I would say tidy World War II action movie thriller that all takes place on a plane in real time. Um during the war, as a, as a crew takes flight, and the setup here is that Chloe Grace Moretz. Um She storms her way onto this World War II plane, you know, in uniform, and says she's on a top secret mission that she can't tell anybody on the plane about. She has to take care of this bag. And because she's the only woman on board, and because nobody knows who she is, they shove her in the ball turret, you know, the little shooting gun at the very bottom of the plane. And she can hear them make fun of her on the microphone, (laughs) you know, make fun of her at 30 and her expertise, and uh, make fun of her as a woman and say a bunch of awful stuff about her. So that Fairly soon, um, when they've refused to have give her any authority at all, she sees a gremlin on the wing. She decides, really, it doesn't really help to tell them since they're just making fun of her for everything anyways. And they wind up turning her mic. So then this becomes this survival mission that still continues to play out in real time between like her, this gremlin, these guys, and then also some fighter jets who show up at um, as well just to make everything as complicated as possible. I have to say, I really enjoy Chloe Grace Moretz. So I was happy to watch this. You know, there's a lot in this film that I think doesn't at all feel like a period film. You know, it has this modern Twitter sensibility. You know, somebody says, shoot your shot at one point. And there's a bunch of images here that are gender flipped just to say, you've never seen that before. You know, at the ending, I just kept saying, I've never seen that in a film. I've never seen that in a film. It is just to say, like, look, we did it. You know, um, very much a Rosie the Riveter of action film kind of a kind of um, rah rah move. But I have to say, I still enjoyed this film for what it is. You know, just as like a, a tiny tiny little action genre film. The creature design is fairly good for the Gremlin. They make it look more like a bat and less like a slithery lizard thing. I feel like everything is a slithery lizard thing. <laughs> a bat, I can appreciate. And, and it does end at the credits with this very cool retro footage of female soldiers who are getting in planes, shooting machine guns. That was also footage I hadn't seen before, so I was glad to see that here.
1: The film is Shadow in the Cloud, starring Chloe Grace Moretz, Roseanne Liang, the director and co-screenwriter with Max Landis. It's rated R, and you can see it through Lemley's Virtual Cinema. The Russian drama Dear Comrades stars Julia Vysotskaya. Uh, the film is written and directed by Andrei Konchalovsky. Uh, wait, what do you think of Dear Comrades?
0: I love it. One of the best films of the year. I I really hope people find this. This is the official Russian submission for the Academy Awards this year. It also received a jury prize at the Venice Film Festival. And, uh, you know, Konchalovsky is such an interesting filmmaker. He's had so many different stages to his career. He's in his 80s now. He's at the peak of his powers. He's been making movies since the 60s. And, uh, this may very well be one of his best films. He's almost hitting his stride. He made uh, paradise about four years ago in black and white, which was just an, almost the the pinnacle of his career. And I think this is very much in keeping with that. It's shot in black and white academy ratio, you know, square frame one, three, three. And uh, you can't take your eyes off of it. It, it. it stylistically harkens back to the work that he of, of Andrei Tarkovsky, with whom he was a collaborator in Tarkovsky's early stage of his career. Um, everything is just artistically composed, staged for maximum cinematic impact, to direct your eye to where it needs to be, direct your emotions to faces, direct your, 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 your eye to every corner of the frame where something needs to, needs to be. Um basically it takes place in nineteen sixty two and it centers around a real event, which was a strike of workers at the Nova uh, at a factory in a city called Novocherkask. Can't believe I pronounced that correctly. Wow, it sounded perfect. Uh, which is I worked on it. Uh, Which is in which is in southwestern Russia, just near Ukraine and just above the the Black Sea. And um, this strike is unacceptable, obviously, to the authorities and to to Nikita Khrushchev, who is then premier. And so uh, there there is a sweeping crackdown that takes place. And you you see all of this through the experience of a woman who is part of the city uh, council. She's she's, you know, a, a, a party member. She's a dedicated socialist. And she, she won't accept any, any, uh, any dissent whatsoever with respect to the party line. But now her daughter goes missing. And amid all of this chaos, she's forced to sort of reflect on her values, what has become of her country, where is her country going. And you get a, an extraordinary look at the, the dysfunction and the corruption of the system. And uh, and how people are, are just chattel, basically. Um, it's just a magnificent film. It, it channel, channels everything through the characters. The lead performance by Julia uh, Vysitskaya. I'm hoping hope I didn't mangle that either is is really, really remarkable. If uh, if it weren't so hard for foreign language, you know, unknown foreign language actors to get Oscar nominations, I would say she would be right in the hunt.
1: We're talking about the Russian drama Dear Comrades, written and directed by Andrei Konchalovsky. The film's unrated, and if you want to see it, which Wade is recommending you do, uh, you have just a week to see it at Film Forum's Virtual Cinema. Just do a search for Film Forum's Virtual Cinema. You'll be able to see Dear Comrades during a one-week period. And the documentary, The Minimalist, Less Is Now, uh, tells the story of two longtime friends who built a movement out of minimalism. Charles, what'd you think?
3: Well, this is a case where less really is less. (laughs) Uh, These two characters stand up and give clearly rehearsed monologues as if they're auditioning for a TED Talk with all of the pretense and none of the substance, but... They declare every bromide with the conviction of Balboa announcing he's discovered the Pacific, even when people knew it was there all along it wasn't it was, wasn't the Amer- it was the American dream, but it wasn't my dream. This is supposed to be profound. If the film is really about them, they don't need other people talking about how we produce and consume too much stuff. If the film is about how we produce and too, consume too much stuff that we don't need. We don't need to learn that they were poor as kids and were friends uh, since elementary school. Um, it's one of the things you can get along without and be perfectly happy.
1: The Minimalist. Less is now weighed. I,
0: I feel like it would be not in keeping with the spirit of that film for me to actually say anything. I feel like we should <laughs> we should probably just say just even less. Yeah, but uh, Charles is right. It, it, less really is less. I felt like I felt like I was watching a really, really pretentious uh, and arrogant episode of Hoarders, where where, you know what, we're all hoarders. And even if you aren't a hoarder, you're a hoarder in your mind and in your values. And I kind of, at a certain point, just kind of, sort of got fed up because it's one of those movies where the people in it are being incredibly pretentious and self-centered, and they are elevated purely because they, of, of what they presumably know and do better than everyone else. But, but there's never anything that is offered as kind of a replacement. Like, this is, at least if you're going to be that, that presumptuous about telling people that they're living wrong... Give them advice as to how they should live. Instead, tell them what they should be doing and what they should be embracing. And there's there's none of that. There, it's just kind of uh, these pompous characters who who know better and are better. And they're just gonna they're they're just gonna poke their fingers in our eyes. And and that's it. And it really. I, I saw no point to it whatsoever.
1: The Minimalist Less is Now is unrated, directed by Matt Devella, and it starts streaming on Netflix on New Year's Day, January 1st. The Minimalist Less is Now. Wait, can you give us about 45 seconds on the Netflix action comedy, We Can Be Heroes, written and directed by Robert Rodriguez?
0: Yeah, if, if 15 years ago, Robert Rodriguez made a movie for kids, basically kind of coming out of the Spy Kids thing, The Adventures of uh, Lava Girl and Shark Boy, which tanked. And for some reason, 15 years later, presumably we need a hero team sequel to that. And that's what this is. It's all these additional heroes in that world and their kids who have to now save the world after their parents are captured. And it, it it's kind of arduous and juvenile and silly and ridiculous, so I I don't really know who the audience is.
1: We Can Be Heroes, rated PG, starring Yaya Gosselin and Pedro Pascal, Robert Rodriguez, the writer-director, and it's streaming on Netflix, We Can Be Heroes. You're listening to Film Week on KPCC with Wade Major, Charles Solomon, Amy Nicholson joining us. We'll be back in just one minute with more to talk about. Very happy holiday week to you from all of us at Film Week. We so appreciate you listening and being a part of what we do here on KPCC. I'm joined this week by critics Wade Major, Amy Nicholson, and Charles Solomon and I want to give each of them a chance to weigh in on some of their favorite holiday films. Uh, Charles, we uh, of course you know getting right up to the wire here of, of Christmas, those listening on Saturday. It'll be the day following Christmas, but there's still some uh, terrific things to watch, including uh, something available on YouTube, Charles, you can tell us about?
3: Uh, sure. there are, of course, the three classic holiday specials, you know, uh, the Rudolph the Red-nosed reindeer. And that's been in people's minds lately because two of the original puppets sold last month for $368,000. Amazing. There's Chuck Jones' version of The Grinch, which is so much better than the attempts to turn it into a feature, because there isn't a feature's worth of story there. And, of course, a Charlie Brown Christmas. What's Christmas without Linus reciting the Gospel of St. Luke? And is the only special that actually deals with what Christmas is about. But there are two um, lesser-known films you can find on YouTube that are both terrific. One is Paul Driessen's *An Old Box*. This was something he did at the National Film Board of Canada. Paul is this nutty Dutch animator who does strange, lumpy people. Uh, but it's set at Christmas time in Quebec, probably Montreal, and it's just this charming, gentle, fragile little fantasy about Christmas. That once again deals with what the holiday is really about. Understated, delicate, fragile line in the cold. Uh, a lovely film. The other is Richard Williams' version of A Christmas Carol, which won the Oscar back in uh, 1972. Uh, it's an excellent adaptation, and it's done like his titles with A Charge of the Light Brigade were, in a style that recalls 19th century steel cuts. So it looks and feels like what Dickens is describing and they don't shy away from the darker parts of the story. Scrooge has to confront the specters of ignorance and want and is uh, warned particularly to beware of ignorance, which seems particularly appropriate today. And there's the wonderful sequence when Marley's ghost appears and announces, I wear the chains I forged in life. Something I think, um, we should be thinking about today but it's a wonderful adaptation of that classic story i don't know why it isn't available on disc or even videotape but i was delighted to be able to find it after so
2: many years
1: oh that's terrific charles thanks so much for sharing about that amy what what are some of your favorites this time of year
2: Well, my family has two sacred Christmas things that we always watched every year as a kid that I continue to do um, now that I live here in LA. One of them is the Claymation Christmas Celebration. It's from the 80s. And it was by um, Will Vinton, who is the kind of claymation animator who I think had such a feel for the 80s look. He invented the California raisins. He invented the Noid. This is his Christmas special, what's like a musical where you have, you know, walruses ice skating to angels, we have heard on high and the California raisins singing Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer. <laughs> and you know, a group of ch- anthropomorphic church bells um, at Notre Dame singing Carol of the Bells by getting hit in the head. I mean, it's it's a ridiculous, ridiculous cartoon. But it uh, it's one of my favorite, favorite things that I watch every single year, much to my boyfriend's disgruntlement. Um, it also now, I feel like I'm revealing too much about my family, but we really did have a thing for watching Santa Claus Conquers the Martians every year. Oh, yeah. Oh, good. You've seen I it. I remember I'm not it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's the movie where um, the Martians are worried that their kids have become too regimented in their thinking and they're also watching too much Earth television. So, to try to make them better society members of the Martian society, they decide they need Santa Claus. And so they kidnap Santa Claus and they try to make toys. And it is completely ridiculous. One of those schlocky 60s movies that I absolutely love. And it's got a childhood Pia Zadora in the film, which is how I first became acquainted with the the legend of Pia Zadora.
1: It's, it's sort of a Plan 9 um, uh, Christmas movie, right? I mean, Plan 9 from <laughs> outer
2: space. <laughs> I think this movie definitely shaped my movie taste starting at a young age. So thank you, Dad.
1: Santa Claus Conquers the Martians is available, by the way, on Vudu and on Amazon Prime. So it is it is out there to be seen. Wade, your favorite holiday films.
0: Thrilled that Amy loves Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. We've got to have a we have to have a viewing party when <laughs> when all this pandemic ends because that was one of my favorites too. In fact, the the weapons that the Martians use are just Whammo air blasters from the era, and I went and had my parents get me a Whammo air blaster so I could pretend to be a Martian. I it remember was rather this. It was rather pathetic but um i'm gonna say there is an amazing thing that just happened with on uh, disney plus which is that the original 1947 miracle on 34th street it can be seen on disney plus that is the widest dissemination that film has probably ever had uh at any time for the most number of people that that's extraordinary Mi- tens of millions of people can now watch the original miracle on 34th street at any time, they don't have to tune in on a day or a time, you know, and catch it at the right time. So it may discover an entirely new audience. The movie was, of course, remade twice, once for television, once by John Hughes with Richard Attenborough. But there's nothing like the original 1947 film, which won three Academy Awards, including two for the screenplay when they had divided awards and one for Edmund Gwen, who plays Chris Kringle in it. And so beautifully. And of course, we're talking about a young Pia Zadora. This one has a young Natalie Wood, and uh, I I, I think, who's incredible, and the beauty of Miracle on 34th Street is that it does, you know, Charles talking about Chuck Jones earlier, it does something that Chuck Jones was particularly expert at, which is, if you see this film as a child, it's magical, but if you see it as an adult, it's equally magical, but in a different way, it works on two different levels. And uh, it's really an extraordinary screenplay. If you've grown up with the movie and then you see it again as an adult, I think you'll have an entirely new appreciation for what an incredible achievement it is.
1: George Seaton directed uh, and uh, adapted uh, from Valentine Davies' story. We also should mention Marino O'Hara. I'm so glad you brought this film up because it's one of my favorite, if not my favorite, Christmas film. Uh, O'Hara's portrayal of the, the you know, modern mom who, you know, really is, is trying to make sure her daughter lives in the, you know, um, in the, in the real world. Uh, Wait, it's a great performance there too.
0: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, it, it's, it, it has one of those great tandems, you know, that was the thing in the thirties and forties was finding those great tandems between your lead actress and your lead actor. And usually we think of Tracy Hepburn as sort of the, being the archetypal tandem there. And just, a, you know, half a dozen others that included Cary Grant, but here, Maureen O'Hara and John Payne are a wonderful, wonderful tandem. They're matched. They go head to head. They have these arguments they have these almost extraordinary intellectual debates. Uh, but yet there's 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 a really spirited human core at the middle of everything. and you and they 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 just hold they grip you. They hold your attention just beautifully. It's one of the best things Marina O'Hara ever did,
1: and Edmund Gwen, of course, as you said, is Chris Kringle in Miracle on thirty Fourth Street, which the original nineteen forty seven version we're talking about is streaming on Disney Plus. I want to thank our critics for a wonderful year of films, even if 2020 has been challenging in so many ways. Our critics have done a wonderful job in bringing you all the films available for streaming, on demand, and in whatever limited theatrical release has been available this year. Joined today by our terrific critics, Amy Nicholson, Wade Major, and Charles Solomon. For all of us at Film Week, we wish you a very happy holiday week. Uh, a wonderful new year. We are off next week. There's no film week, the final week of the year, but we'll be back with you, of course, uh, in 2021 with a whole new year's worth of film reviews. Have a terrific holiday week from all of us.